0: In this episode of Data Driven, Frank and Andy get back to the data engineering side of the equation by speaking with Saket Saurab, co-founder of Nexler. Nexler specializes in tools for automating data engineering processes. Now on to the show.
1: Hello and welcome to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emerging fields of data science, machine learning, and of course, the ever-present data engineering. This is um, season seven that we're now in, and we are welcoming uh, – Andy is shaking his head if you're not watching the video. It is hard to believe that we hit season seven seasons, but by the time this is launched, you probably have heard our one or two shows where we did kind of delve in deep. So you're probably tired of hearing us bang on about that. So <laughs> – oh, um so, I, I, I really like kind of kicking off this first guest uh, interview uh, for season seven with um, a, a, a Saket Sarab, uh, who runs, who's co founder and CEO of a company called Nexla, whose tagline is automation for data engineering. And if there's anything we've heard about in the last, say, six to 10 months, it's all been automation this, automation that, whether it's ChatGPT or any other kind of um, low code, no code. Automation's all the rage, um, and uh, he also unlike like a uh, very much like a previous guest has a cool vendor tag from Gartner. So we're going to talk to uh, that. Welcome to the show, Saket.
2: Thank you, Frank, and thank you, Andy, good to be here.
1: Um, so very fascinated about um kind of your story in the virtual green room. We were talking about you know you used to write Linux drivers for video card manufacturers and we 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 spent a few minutes on uh, waxing poetic about um, how easy Linux has become. Um, so what exactly uh, what exactly does automation for data engineering mean to you? I think let's start there.
2: Yeah. I think uh, when we look at um, enterprises and companies out there with a lot more data with a lot more people who need to use data, there are two ways you can achieve scale. One is through automation and the other is through collaboration. And automation or achieving scale through automation means that the tasks that we do today, can they be automated? Can they become more intelligent? So for example, if I had to create a data pipeline and I have to connect to a data system and read the data, process it, maybe transform that, push the data somewhere. Let's say it takes me you know, four weeks or six weeks to write that code, test it, QA, t- take it to production. Automation would basically mean that can a lot of these these things be done automatically and faster. So can I, for example, not have to write a connector, it can get auto-generated there, right? Can I not have to write, you know, test uh, or or error conditions and check for them, them because the system can look at the data, understand its properties and say, oh, this would be a good validation for this type of data, for example. Or if I had to, um, you know, process or run the same pipeline, but now the data volume has grown 10x. I don't have to go and do a whole bunch of engineering to to manage that scale. The system can understand, oh, the scale is increasing. Uh, my bottleneck is in this part of the processing. Let me allocate more containers to that and just let it run smoothly. So automation is a lot about doing the same tasks that we do, but doing that um, you know faster, why? Because something can figure out certain tasks, do it for us, you know, create more reliability, create more repeatability, create better performance without us having to do that manual work. So when we go back into automation for data engineering and you understand that there is so much data engineering work to do, I think it's almost impossible for for the data engineers out there to just support all that demand that they have. Automation for them is is like something that helps them and supports them. And it's like, you know, a lot of easy use cases can be done automatically and quickly, and a lot of difficult use cases can have big chunks uh, you know taken care of in various aspects. So that's kind of where that direction is. and automation is one of the key parts to that scale. Okay. interesting. yeah, I really
0: like um I really like your description of this. i'm I'm wondering if it's okay if you share a little more detail. um i've've worked some with automating data engineering uh, in the past, and I find that it's um, it's it's very applicable when you're doing pretty much straight one-to-one type stuff. And it's not, that's not throwing off on your product by any stretch. I just, I don't know if you agree or disagree, but I think about staging data. <clears throat> so I can pull data from extracts, you know, text files, flat files, and load that into some data store, uh, usually a database. And... Once I get it there, I find a couple of things are true. And I may not pull it from an extract. I may pull it from the system of record. I want to get in, get the data, and get out with doing as little harm as possible, stealing as little cycles. But once I get my copy of it, then I can start applying rules, looking for um, you know opportunities to apply strong data types and the like. Um, and automation really works well there. Did your product, uh, I'm, I'm assuming, does that and does that part well?
2: yeah absolutely but there are also parts where you know you're getting that extract and there is a slight change in schema now and uh, it's more or less the same but can automation you know cache that for you and take care of a few of those things or or do you have to go back and you know write that piece of code there so there are many places where you um, you know you you can you can benefit from that. So there is what we call uh, when we talk about automation. What is the driver of the automation? What is the source of that? And we put that on uh, an an aspect of applying intelligence to the metadata. So when we okay. look at the data and we understand that the metadata is actually things like the schema, or you know, I have a price attribute in my extract, but this is the behavior of that attribute. This is how it looks like. These are the characteristics, and based on that metadata, can I apply a validation rule to it, uh, for example, automatically without having to to define that and something does it for me? That is is bringing automation. So it actually the roots of that come from uh, there is so much information. For example, your your data extract happens every day at 4 p.m. and you expect the finished data to be ready by 5 and on some day it doesn't happen. It's 6 o'clock and it's not there. So is there automation going and saying, you know, alert, it didn't come through. Oh, by the way, the reason it didn't come through was that, you know, your stuff was all great except these 20 records in between completely threw it off because it was, you know, wrongly formatted or whatever happened. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, so stuff like that is where i think that automation uh, really becomes an assist um in 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 this so you know the business problem you know what you're trying to do this yeah. is how you get there faster yeah.
0: so i've heard that you know change unexpected changes in formats which i i've seen it you know all the time this is because it's what i do but um i see it i hear i hear that addressed uh, under the topic of schema drift yeah. and it can happen a couple of different ways you can miss a tab or comma, whatever delimiter you're using, you can either miss one or an extra one be inserted uh, in the extract process. Um, You know, you can have missing files, completely missing files for a variety of reasons, some of which are legit. Like, you know, you're doing an incremental extract and nothing changed And, and, you know, stuff like that. And I guess your product addresses that, has rules for saying, you know, if this is missing, just keep going. It's a slowly changing dimension. And if
2: we miss a, you know, 10 in a row, it's no big deal. So what we do at a very high level, right? When we think about data engineering, one of the key problems that it solves is is integrating data, you know, getting data from point A to point B and, and making sure it's valid, it is trusted, it can be used by the downstream application. There is often an implicit contract that, you know, that, that dashboard is relying on this sort of information. So what sure. we do basically at a high level is one, we are like, hey, um, we can figure out how to connect to new systems. This is a part where we bring automation to the connector creation. So instead of writing code for connectors, we are able to generate most of the connectors out there. So that's one part, but when we scan through the data, we understand, we do understand what the schema is and all of that, and we present that and automatically sort of package that into what we call as a logical data product that that becomes much more uh, un- easily understandable by an average data user person who okay. can look at the data, understand it. So in that process, in between that, yes, the schema drift is an important part, but it's not as straightforward because what happens is, you know, you're getting data with you know first name and last name and email address, and suddenly you get data maybe two records which don't match that. Right. Is that an error? Is that a change? Is that an evolution? You know, you got first name, last name email address, and now you're also getting phone number. Well, it's a sparse schema potentially, and it's a drift in schema, Well, does it break the downstream contract, you know, uh, because something got renamed or does it just simply add to that? So there is, there are a few of those aspects. We do cover all of those, uh, by sort of, uh, saying that, um, when I, uh, you know, when I connect to a data system, I'm going to present that data in a certain sort of a data product view Is we call it a logical data product. So okay. you say it is a logical data product. This is all all that is. these are the characteristics and stuff, and you decide what you want to do with it and how you want to use it. But once you have a consumer for a data product, then it sort of implicitly creates that contract, and we sort of keep track of that. Um, and and there's some uh, some interesting concepts that we do there, which is you can take a data product and create some derivatives out of that. So you can say I have the I have an order or transactions, and it has credit card number. I'll mask it, and I have an order ID, and I'll look up the items from a different entity, and now I have a new data product which is enriched and which is maybe more PII safe. So some interesting. Yeah. To that. You know what I like about that is.
0: We we think about um, tools that visualize lineage, Atlas and mm-hmm. Purview, and tools like that. But those are very reactive. Even though you know both Atlas and uh, Microsoft's implementation of that uh, Purview uh, introduce automatic scans, automated scans. So, and they manage schema drift to a certain extent. You 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 know this if you've tried to if you've ever tried to code a tool to react to schema drift, then you know how complex that is. And I. I can't wait to see large language models integrated into that process because I suspect it'll do a much better job of managing that than trying to guess, at, you know, what this data type should be and such. But what I hear you describing in your contract sounds like a proactive uh, piece to that, where you meet with your your client and you say, "Yeah, here's our, you know, whatever you want to call it, our data dictionary, what have you, <clears throat> of all of our source data." And our fields and columns, and you know, fields, columns, uh, metadata for all of that. And then you're saying it's, imp- you know, these particular fields are important because they're used downstream in these dozen reports at the very end of the process. But what you're saying is if another related field was to show up in that list, then you're going to be able to make a, um, an educated guess at whether that schema
2: drift or whether it's additional attributes. Is that is that what I'm understanding? We make an educated guess about, is this a one-off thing and we should treat it as an error? Hmm. You know, hey, this record is an error. It didn't actually meet certain criteria. Or this is a change that is showing up. And the way you do that is you observe that data over a certain period of time to, to make okay. the determination. And we do a certain level of uh, drift analysis. And, and if the drift is very significant, then what we do is we today, actually uh, do not go and make assumptions on behalf of of the the user we actually create a notification and saying we saw a significant change and we think this might be a new data product that we have detected so we are connected to a source we're looking at the schemas and stuff and we're saying here's a data product that data product is you know transactions and this is what it looks like oh some new thing came here and whatnot but then at some point we may say hey this is looks significantly different would you like to consider this as a new entity, and then it sort of notifies the user and lets them do that. I think when building automation, at least my understanding is that's very important to understand um, you know, when to make a reasonable assumption and when to actually let the user decide. But even yes. creating that workflow is a big value add because this is stuff that actually would have gotten missed maybe for a few days, uh, but you are getting notified about that upfront. So you know, we try to right. be maybe a little bit more conservative, if anything, about uh, making assumptions on behalf of the customer or the user because you go wrong and it you know it's not uh, it's not fun at all. Yeah, I, I really like it.
1: No, that's interesting. And I see you've been around. You've been around. Uh, your company's been around about seven years. Yeah. Um, what has changed in those seven years? Because I think seven years ago AI was not on the top of everyone's lips. Obviously, I think certainly since chat gpt came out right it's 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 a big part of the conversation have you also seen kind of the data engineering world be kind of touched by ai um and if so how
2: uh, not as much but i think it is getting there so when we started very early you know as you said you know 7 years ago we had actually come in with a very um uh, the question when starting the company was Do we want to build an AI or a machine learning company? Because actually, in 2016, it was hot, it was hype. There was a lot of like, oh, this is going to change the world. You know, always the hype is ahead of the reality. And it took a while before, you know, things like, um, you know, LLM came around and generative AI is starting to succeed. But even otherwise, there are a lot of other AI initiatives that are still figuring their way out. But we were very clear that we want to build the technology for the users of data. We want to focus on use users of data. We won't be, um, um, and allow the user of data to get the data wherever they need and, and do whatever they want to do with it in whatever tool they want to do with. So we came with that approach, uh, because we said that the user of data is not going to be necessarily very, uh, um, um expert in a data system. So there's expertise in data, which is, I understand what the data is. And there's expertise in data systems, which is what the more engineering side. And they said the data user will not be an expert in data. So if you have a lot more variety of data that's coming, how do they use it? We'll create an abstraction. We'll create an abstraction that will give them a clean, consistent view of data, no matter where it comes from. So now you're like, I don't care if the data was a stream or API or JSON or document or whatever. I have something consistent to work with. So, we went in and looked at metadata and started to apply metadata intelligence to create that. I would say that when we were doing it, a lot of people early on were like, Why are you doing that? Why not just create like this straightforward thing that everybody does? What has changed for us is in the last two years or so, our approach of creating this logical entity around data and using that started to catch on with the concept of data products. So, where we were initially struggling to say, What does this mean and why is it valuable? has suddenly become like, oh, it makes so much sense that you guys have done it this way. So so that has certainly changed. I think that application of (laughs) intelligence to the metadata itself to make data tasks themselves more automated is is a very valid use case. Um, The generative models are doing quite well in things like, can you generate a description for this data? If this data looks like this, you know, uh, there's also been uh, some really interesting stuff in terms of generating code as far as data engineering is concerned hey can you generate code um you know that reads it up from here and pushes it out there so i think there is that happening as well so there's a lot of i think um places um you know transforming data for example if the data looks like this and it has to become like that can we figure out what is the logic in between so i think uh, i would say that it's good that we're moving in that direction um because I believe that the number of things to do is so massive that some yeah. degree of automation is essential.
0: I, I totally I, agree. And I was just scrolling. So apologies, Frank. I, oh, I was no just worries. scrolling around on uh, Nexla.com and looking at your data operations. And I, I love first, I want to commend you for next sets. That's a that's a cool play. And um, some of the, the fields that you cover here, you know, I've in, in my career, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm old. Uh, socket. So, but uh, continuous metadata intelligence caught my eye. Mm-hmm. That is that is a very cool concept, and I've done what you described here. Sounds like some stuff that I've done, but that's a cool, much cooler name. <laughs> so, <laughs> continuous metadata CMI. That just rolls off the tongue. Oh, and I, great! You know Thank the you. idea, that's- the automated error management and quarantine. I'm just kind of going from the bottom up here on the page. For data operations those are those are just key pieces of functionality that you know time and time again data warehouse uh, etl includes something like that but everybody's rolling it you know from scratch uh you know and, and this is this is just very cool i love this idea of abstracting that out and um i'm not uh, i'm just going to throw this out there i want to be signing up for a demo i want to see more
2: Oh, absolutely! You're very welcome for that. And I think the other problem that we that it helped us solve, as I said, you know, there are two ways to get scale in enterprise. One is through automation, and the other is through collaboration. Yeah. So by creating this abstracted entity, we were able to say, "Hey, this is a lot more easy to understand as access control. You can, I can be really good at connecting to the data from, you know, a transaction system and cleaning it up and doing some." you know, uh, applying some compliance to it. But then the output of my work, which is the cool thing about these next sets of the data products is you take one and you apply some operations to the output is another next set, which is identical in behavior and, and consistency. But it is a slightly different view of the data and you can give somebody else access to that. And you can keep repeating that process. We can imagine in a large company, people are, Finding these, they're creating their own variants and they're using sure. it, but what they're doing becomes an input to somebody else and they can go take it out of there. And what we did a month back was introduce the concept of, you can take all of these logical data products and nexus that we are creating and make them into, put them into a marketplace that is internal to the company. We can allow people to go find it, request to get that. You're not really buying. You're saying, hey, can I get access to that? And there is a this yeah. sort of a, a mechanism to approve and give people access to that. Now the interesting thing is that these are all very importantly these these next sets or data products are logical entities. They're not yeah. making new copies of data, so they're bringing the same sort of benefits that containerization, for example, has done on the compute side. Is like you have an abstract right. entity; it's consistent. You don't have to worry about what was under the hood. Where did it come from? Was it XML data or was it you know CSV? Now you have something consistent to work with, and it opens up a whole bunch of interfaces. So I can take that data product, that next set, and say. I would like this data in a warehouse and, or I would like this data as an API. And, and you realize that the same entity can have benefits for different users and they right. can approach it in different ways. So we think that is what is bringing collaboration. So when you bring together automation yeah. on one hand, collaboration on another, and then you really get the benefits of scale from both technology and process.
0: I absolutely love you. Now, now I get why you keep saying data product. And it it makes perfect sense now. You're you're creating a very interesting um, almost an integration layer in, in between the idea of, of containerized for code and you're you're containerizing data. And that's what I believe your data product represents. And now now I'm really interested in that demo.
1: Well, especially, you know, with my recent forays into OpenShift and kind of what what containerization has done for developers, I think it's only a matter of time before containerization kind of hits the data world, and 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 there's just something I, I want to point out. Um, which is that it was very smart, I think, if you to focus on the data engineering side, right? Because AI is the hype machine, right? I, I I fully admit that. I say this as a data scientist, right? Um, but one of the things that we've kind of discovered um, both Andy and I and in both our professional careers is that, you know, data scientists will tend to brush aside the the simple basics of, you know, they, they it's five words, right? First you get the data or first we got the data, right? Behind that is months <laughs> right. of work. It's orders of magnitude of work. In fact, one of the spiels I have um, uh, now is kind of like, you know, it's the idea of rock stars and roadies. Right. And for every rock star, there's a there's an army of roadies uh, that set up the lights, the, you know, move the chairs around and take set up the equipment and manage the sound. So I think that the data engineering, I think, is is one of those things that I think is not. It's like the Rodney Dangerfield of of kind of the data world <laughs> where it didn't get any respect up until lately, because, it, you know, chat GPT will get all the headlines. Right. But. Think about the data that went into it. You know, I, I've heard numbers. You know, billions and trillions of parameters for the for four. Uh, it's just I think it's smart that you you picked that, and I think that actually worked out pretty well for you.
2: Actually, what what worked, um, you know, fortunately for us was that. But um, I actually really looked at machine learning as a way to you know. As, so I'd, I'd been an entrepreneur before. I'd built a company. I really enjoyed sort of building the data aspect of it. I'd built a company in the advertising ad tech space, built one of the earliest mobile ad servers. You know, we became part of uh, the largest ad exchange at the time outside of Google. So we were processing over 300 billion records a day. And my co-founder here was running that infrastructure and we're like, you know, at some level to be candid, I didn't really enjoy being in advertising, but I did like the sort of data challenges that were there. So we were looking to figure out like, what is the next, because we had taken that company public and all that stuff and we moved on. I was like, okay, what what is the next thing you wanna work on? And I really seriously looked at building something because machine learning and AI was hot topic even in 2015, 16. But when I looked at it, I understood that at some level, it is so specific to that business and that company and that problem that almost becomes consultative. And I was like, how do you platform it? It's hard to platform because even two, you can take two retail companies and they're solving maybe the same problem of recommending products to people and their models will be very different and what you do there is not easily translatable. Right. So I, I hesitated for that reason. And when I look back in hindsight, almost some of the major companies that came out on machine learning, ultimately when you look deeper into it, they're large professional services organizations under the hood. And, and that's what gave us, gave us a hesitation. I'm more of an engineer. I like to build a platform and you know make it once and let people use it and the data engineering part of it is what looked like uh, like that thing. But um, I don't know if you have read this paper called the Hidden um, Debt in Machine Learning Systems. It's a Google paper. And it actually talks about, uh, there's a very cool diagram in there. If you, I don't know if you can screen share here, but, um, uh, but actually uh, is a diagram which shows that in all these different boxes, this, this is a tiny box called machine learning and there's huge boxes around it, which are all essentially data. Uh, I think it's a 2016 paper if I'm not mistaken. Okay. I'm um, looking it up yeah hidden technical debt in machine learning systems is the paper and um the there's a diagram on the third page um which uh, which shows that but it is uh, it is interesting that you know even at that time people who were working on these things um, were were seeing the same uh, you know pattern mm. ah
1: okay. uh, yes i have seen this this diagram it's yeah. um yeah it's um this is something that that comes up in my day job quite a bit where we talk about how the machine learning is only one part of it, right? Yeah. Like it, it is, it is, there's a whole lot that has to go into that. So, yeah, no, I mean, this is, and that's a good point. And I think that all, everybody wants to be the rock star, right? Like everybody wants to have their name up on lights, but the amount of people that goes to make that rock star look good. There's, there's a lot of opportunity in there. And, you know, uh, he's been a guest on the show. He's kind of like, he's famous within a certain internet circle, John Lee Dumas, right? He says he has a phrase where, you know, I like boring. Boring is good because no one is competing to do the boring stuff. Not that data engineering is, is is boring. I want to, I want to head off the, um, the hate mail (laughs) (laughs) right there, but no, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where, um, there's enormous opportunity if you look, you know that box. It's one part of the the whole operation, and it's it, a it, tiny
0: it, little ML code box
1: in the right. <laughs> it takes out all the oxygen in the room. But you know, re- re- realistically, in order to have that little box, you need to stand on a lot of other operations, right? And and I kind of had this, you know, and Andy and I kind of had this, you know, back and forth, and obviously data science is important, blah, 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 AI is important, machine learning is important, but it stands on the shoulders of giants. Yes. You know, another another uh, analogy I've seen where it shows like, you know, like the, you know like a rocket, right? And a little capsule that holds people, right? But it's sitting on top of a massive rocket, which of course has the, you know, the launch pad and all the other accessories to it, right? It's just kind of, it, 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 that's another way to look at it, right? It is crucial. And I think it's, you know, it's a shame that we kind of, Not we, but, like, it doesn't get the attention that it deserves.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, data engineering is is complex. It is also painful. It is also something that has to be done at a massive, massive scale, and it's challenging. But remember, it's a means to the end. And people get fascinated about that end that happens eventually. But the means to the end takes a lot of work. And sometimes, to be candid, it becomes thankless work because I I, you know why do we why are we such a big proponent of bringing automation into data engineering work You cannot automate all of data engineering just to be clear but if, when you bring in automation you're saying that if I'm running you know literally I have customers running thousands of pipelines in on our, our system for example and um you don't want to be woken up on that Saturday night because one of those is not working you want automation in there right you want that system to to work for you otherwise Sure. All you get in data engineering is a lot of lot of work to do and complaints when it doesn't work. But it is it is a very key niche then. So I, I do celebrate the work that they do. And if you look at OpenAI, for example, because it's such a hot company right now, that billion dollar plus in funding, you know, very few companies could have done what they have done because they had that kind of money, okay? Right to begin with. But I bet if you look at how that money got spent, I'm sure a big chunk is in pipelines because of data and processing that and moving that around and we don't we don't talk about it but that you know the reason that ChatGPT works so well is because it can look into all of that data um, and and talk intelligently about it right so yeah
1: no absolutely and in fact um, and I don't know when the switch happened but like in terms of staffing when in a previous job at the end of 2021 there was. They they wanted to do something can't say what it was but they wanted to do something and they said oh it should be you know it it'll be challenging to find the data scientist for this job and my manager and I can look at each other actually at this point in time it's going to be a lot harder to find a data engineers that you're going to yeah. need for that right because you can you're they only really needed two data scientists but just based on what the aggressive thing that they were trying to build um yeah. I mean they would need I, I would just spitball and I would say a dozen data engineers.
2: But from a technology provider and a tool provider perspective, I would say that right. the interesting thing about data engineering is it is very complex, but the challenges are very consistent. I can look at our customers in, in retail, like a Bed Bath or Forever 21, or in delivery like DoorDash or in, in pharma like you know, Janssen, J&J, or, or in, in financial services or in cybersecurity. All of them, you know, the challenges at fundamental level are very, very similar, which is large amounts of diverse, heterogeneous data. You know, being able to take that, process that, do that reliably, detect the issues, you know, all of that stuff, you know, have data quality, monitoring, uh, you know, make the data usable by people, um, scaling, all of those are very similar, which means that it is, it fits very nicely into the traditional sort of problems that can be solved by software, problems that can be solved by automation, a sort of model, right? Um, so I think that is that is definitely a part where the challenges are not like very unique to a certain problem, and of course there are unique flavors to it. You know, some have real-time data, some have data from devices, you know, some have data from uh, legacy systems, and so on. But yeah, there is uh, a structure. Excellent. Cool. Very cool. All I'm right. Tweet, I'm tweeting oh, sorry,
0: about Nexla.
1: Cool. Thank you. R- right now. <laughs> um and 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 for all the stalkers we are recording this on uh, April 12th. <laughs> so right. this is uh just just FYI. So if you look at Andy's feed you're like where is the tweet? That's that's you have to go back. <laughs> um so we do uh at this point in the show we want to switch to kind of the the pre uh found questions and and yeah. given your background, you know, uh the first one I I really have to know the answer, right? We always ask, how did you find your way into data? Did the data life find you or did you find data?
2: I think it was happening together, right, I guess. Um, So my decision to start a company, and I I mentioned to you guys, I'd been at NVIDIA on the compute side of the world, uh, really. And uh, at some point, I decided to start my own company. And when I was looking to do that in 2009, I was like, where do I go build you know, um, a platform, if you will. And I felt that at the time in 2009, apps were new and I'm going to build a monetization platform for app developers in the mobile space. Um, That whole approach uh, about building something around ad servers and one of the early ad servers in the mobile space, you know, you realize that it's a very, very data driven world in advertising. And there is a reason why a lot of the data innovation, I would say if you trace its roots, come from advertising, whether it was Yahoo, whether it was Google, whether it was Facebook, what, what was, what were these guys doing with data in the first place? They were dealing with a huge number of people visiting those pages and clicking on those ads. And they had to really figure out how to show the performance and say, which ad should you spend more money in? Where should you not? And, and a lot of machine learning systems that we built early on back in 2011, 12 actually were for that purpose. Yeah. You know, We yeah. ran one of the largest ad auction systems at the time. And if you're running an automated ad auction with 15 billion auctions happening for you know and 300 billion bids on that uh, you have a lot of data but you can also figure out that hey based on certain patterns i can you know um decide who to invite for an auction i can decide what the floor price should be and and those were all machine learning systems so i ended up Actually, building this advertising um, technology and system in in those days to solve that developer problem of like I'm building apps, how do I how do I monetize it? But realizing that a whole chunk of it was data, and hmm. uh, and this was a lot of the data stuff that we did was pre Kafka. Uh, even you know when big data Hadoop was relatively early at the time, so the technologies hmm. were limited. Uh, did a lot of homegrown stuff at the time, but realized that um, this is a massive problem. And I think uh, we, you know, data and I sort of met in that time, but I'm coming from this compute land. I'm building uh, software for embedded systems where you are trained to squeeze every single, you know, kilobyte and every single ounce of performance in some of these systems. Like I mentioned, I was building software for the PlayStation 3 when I was at NVIDIA. And, And you come from that mindset of high performance, you know, squeezing the most of the system, and you see the data challenges. And I thought you know it, it sort of intersected nicely for me in sort of a developer or a product approach. Um, and then we said, well, more people need to be using data. That's where the world is headed. Everybody is gonna become a data user. I could see my, you know, second grade kid at the time and, and they do simple survey in the class, like, and they created a histogram. I'm like, okay, everybody's gonna be data data user. <laughs> How do you really get there? You know, right. not everybody's gonna be technical and engineer. So that is kind of where my um a sort of direct experience in the data world started to happen is like, we want to solve that problem. We want to make it possible for anybody to use data. And what is standing in their way is that data is complex. It's everywhere. It is hard to work with. Only developers are able to do that. So we're going to automate that. We're going to bring that and present that data to this user so and they'll be able the to use it wherever they want. It. And that was the driver for me.
0: Wow. That's, uh, that's fascinating. So I uh, our next question is: uh, What's your favorite part of your current job?
2: I think it's uh, the uh, the CEO job and the co-founder job is uh, is a new challenge. I would say every day, and um, all sorts of unexpected things. I'm still a very product person at heart, so it's like you know the, those things are always fun to look at. But um, I would say no no day is similar to the last one is the best part of it. I mean, I think about a month back all of a sudden we were like, oh, the bank that we are banking with is going under and what do you do? Oh, that? Right? oh my that goodness, yes. You know? And 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 did, did I go in or did any of those CEOs go in on that Thursday or Friday morning to say, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend the whole week in figuring out if we have any money as a company or we're out, uh, all of a sudden, and, you know, the rug pulled underneath us. So I think that's, that's the challenge but that's also the fun I mean you know it, 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 of of this particular role uh, I do yeah. enjoy the part that we are doing some very very cool stuff in data and uh, the number one source of satisfaction for me is when our customers come to us and say uh, uh, you know um, this user of ours in this ph- you know pharma industry they're like you know what this data that we're doing using with you guys it was processing in multiple hours and now it happens in nine minutes I was like wow My that's goodness. Something- <laughs> and uh, and when I hear those kind of stories, I'm like, okay, we are actually delivering value. I don't know how to make a medicine uh, or a medical device, but these guys who know how to do that, we are somehow enabling them to do their job better. And that wow. is, I think, ultimately the satisfaction of the work, right?
0: Very cool.
1: Interesting. So we have a, uh, three um, complete the sentences. And the mm-hmm. first one is, when I'm not working, I enjoy blank.
2: So many things. Um, I I love road biking. I do that a lot right now. But I'm also uh, I love snowboarding and um, yeah, a bunch of a- activities. I don't do flying anymore actively, but that's another one I would do. But yeah, nice.
0: Very cool. Our next uh, complete the sentence. I think the coolest thing in technology today is blank.
2: I would have to say that you know, generative AI is certainly one of the coolest things out there. I think I'm still trying to understand from a technical engineering perspective, like the ins and outs of it. But it is it is fascinating. It is also scary, to be honest. So I wouldn't yeah. deny that either. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, it's
0: funny you mentioned that because I was I was thinking on that earlier today, even and um, the whole idea, the the moving parts. You know, when you start thinking about the image generation, just take a subset
1: mm-hmm.
0: and um, you think about what goes into that, you describe something. So it has to understand what you describe. And that has that LLM component to it, right? Mm-hmm. And then it it interprets that in such a way. And then, <laughs> you know, probably tokenizes it. And then it generates this image. And as I was reading a blurb, uh, a quote from someone at NVIDIA today. And that's what kind of got me down, got me off doing billable work, mind you, and uh, running down the uh, rabbit hole. And the guy, uh, the guy, I think it was a guy from NVIDIA. And if it wasn't, then I apologize. But it was a, a person at NVIDIA who made this statement that we're not rendering, we're, we're approaching that point where we're no longer rendering the uh, pixels, we're generating. Mm-hmm. At the pixel level, so now they're rendering, you know, splotches uh, of it. They're, yes, generated, but probably pulled in from someplace based on the description, a tokenized image from a tokenized description. But they're talking about generating the pixels socket. Okay. That
2: wow! I, I would like to understand how lighting, because lighting is, has always been the biggest part in doing this. Right and and how that applies to it but i would say the reason you know i used to have unconditional love for technology innovation it was 10 years ago everything that is better is always or faster is better but i would yeah. say that um you know post uh, you know social media and youtube and, and all of the stuff I have become a little bit concerned that we really have to understand what is this technology going to do and nothing scares me more than that about generative ai is that okay it is a cool piece of innovation but um Unlike a faster chip, which was almost a no brainer, I think now the question is like, oh, OK, what is it going to do that we can't even think about today?
0: So, yeah. yeah, I'm with you and I get the hesitancy and, you know, the uh, thinking part of our population calling for a moratorium, kind of a six month pause. I knowing what I know about geeks and engineers, even knowing what I know about me, that's not going to happen. I just I found a quote. It's from um digitalnative.substack.com. And uh, here's, here's a quote from it. It's in a talk with Sequoia last week, NVIDIA CEO Jensen Huang said, every single pixel will be generated soon, not rendered, generated. And that mm-hmm. was from, I think, the at the time of this recording, it's either the latest from digital native or next to the latest. So wow. I just
2: Jensen. he's a very smart guy and he knows the stuff better than anybody out there. So if he's yeah. saying it, I believe it. OK. Yeah. But isn't that isn't people I, I don't know if everybody
0: gets how big of a leap that is, you know, to go from what we were doing before uh, to generating pixels. That's a I, I don't know. I may, maybe I'm making too much out of it, but it boggles my mind.
2: At least the game logic and stuff is going there. I was reading something about how they put like these AI agents in the game in this paper that came out, I think, two or three days back, and and they, they figured out to do a Valentine's Day party in there and invite people and all that sort of social mechanics were happening in that sort of generative way. So they're not pre-programming these. Um, Goodness. I I saw that, but mm-hmm. that was also sort of crazy fascinating because when it means to game development and the gaming experience, you can have a truly... A sort of a multi plot storyline of any sort, and you don't know what everybody's game experience is going to do different. I mean, there was a thing at a time when you would code those things and make people have a different experience, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm a, one more thing, and then I'll shut up.
0: Have you, do you remember that Black Mirror episode where the lady's social score was cr- uh, just crashing as she went to some gathering? And by the time she got there, she couldn't get in because she didn't have a high enough social score. Uh, <laughs> it's like we're we're getting to more and more to that point all
1: right in, Frank, some, pl- just... in, in some place in some of the world that already exists
0: oh is it um...
1: okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'll let you um, ask your
0: next fill-in-the-blank. I'm sorry. I Sure, that off no,
1: this is it's all good stuff. I mean, this is what that's what makes this podcast. I mean, dare I say it makes this podcast look cool? But that's what makes this feel interesting, right? It' not it's not just about the bits anymore, right? It's not. Yeah, yeah. So it's about there's social connotations now. Like you know, I used to also be you know, like unquestioned fan of technology. It makes everything better. It's going to solve the problems. And here we are, you know, some ten years later, it's like, oh we actually created a whole bunch of new problems. <laughs> um, and you know, it's kind of, you know, I don't know, is that is that maturity, you know, ten years older, or is that kind of you know the state of the 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 technology that 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 we have created? Uh, I don't know i'll I'll let i'll, I'll let the philosophers debate that one.
2: I think it's evolution because we went from building the basic infrastructure, which is like chips and compute and stuff, and those things are, are, Mm -hmm. but we didn't see that end application to the level that we are seeing now. So it's, you know, better building technology, bricks, cement, all that is good, but suddenly cities are built that look crazy and and whatever, and you're like, oh, is that what we're trying to do here? So I think there's, um, yeah, it's just applying technology to every kind of problem, yeah. Yeah, no,
1: absolutely. All right, and our third and final. What? Complete the sentence. Uh, I look forward to the day when I can
2: use technology to blank. Oh, um, I think I'm I'm on a that I would say like the self-driving car. I think it would save me a good bunch of time if it really becomes reliable. I don't know if I'll trust it, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you now,
0: why is it that all the engineers are suspicious of self-driving cars?
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's <really kind> of- <laughs> I'll be candid with you. At some level, I feel like when I'm driving the car, it's not that much work. And I'm sitting there, right. I might as well just, you know, have my hand on because most of the stuff is gotten automated, like, you know, those adaptive cruises and lane management and stuff. So yeah, it's not yeah. that much work, but uh,
1: yeah. Adaptive cruise control is not self-driving in, in the purest sense but i will it's tell 70% you I,
2: of there.
1: I can't live without it now like like my oh, yeah. Yeah. my car I, this is first world problems right my car will break way all the, all the way to zero miles per hour my wife's car will stop at around 22 miles per hour so mm-hmm. when i'm stuck in a traffic jam in my car i wouldn't say it's no big deal but you know i can just kind of sit back and let the car handle the braking uh in my wife's car when it goes below a certain speed now i'm on the hook it actually is annoying. Which so is pretty funny, um, but uh, <laughs> next question, Andy. <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm in. Yeah, I was going to interrupt you there, Frank, before you uh, yell at you to put down the shovel and climb out.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, share something different about yourself, Socket. But we remind our our uh, interviewees that uh, it's a family podcast, so we want to yeah. keep our clean ratings. So something different about you. And you already mentioned a few. Yeah,
2: I mean, I'm, you know, uh, from a family perspective, I mean, I'm a dad of three kids, you know, two boys who are um, 13 and 10 and a daughter who is six. And, you know, it's, uh, there is definitely uh, a joy to seeing all of that happen. So, yeah, Yeah. I'm I'm a pretty regular individual in that way, Um, but definitely um, bitten by the the desire to build and I'm like, I see a problem, I have to solve it. And that's kind of what landed me in this entrepreneur boat. <laughs> okay. Yeah.
0: That's
1: awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And um the next question, although technically speaking it's out of order. So I need to fix that. Uh audible sponsors, the uh, data driven. Do you do you do audiobooks? Uh and if so, can you recommend uh a good one? And if you don't do audiobooks, uh any any book recommendation will do i
2: i do actually love them that's where the driving part comes in right i mean that's the way to uh, to make the most of your driving time is to be um you know listening into a book um i do a lot of technical stuff actually i think the most recent book that i um was um listening into was um i'm just looking back at my bookshelf because I always get a physical copy as well um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I do the same thing, yeah, um, uh, I think my most recent book that I really enjoyed was um, um I think the book called sapiens I don't know if you have read
0: yes, yeah. oh, I've <laughs> heard of that, and yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, it is an older book, but um, yeah, i I got to it more recently, so yeah, I've got it. haven't read it yet. Um, that author wrote something else
0: that I read. um, was it the? Guns, germs, and steel or something like that. Was that,
2: that was a little bit of a little a, a, oh, a difficult yeah. read though, a would say. That's a little can sit back and listen to it yeah
0: bit it, dude up to of a and let it go
2: yeah exactly <laughs>
1: exactly I actually just finished um, The Wolf of Wall Street the abrid- of oh. a desi- <laughs> d- version and of like, I'd the the movie and and I, I I follow a lot of the other things that uh, Jordan Belfort had kind of done. But you know, after listening to the story, there's a lot that didn't make it into the movie. And the impression I'm left with was truth really is stranger than fiction. I think they left those I think they I think they 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 didn't put some of that stuff in because it just no one would have believed it, you know <laughs> like and and if you've seen the movie, it's a pretty wild story anyway. So there's like yeah. even crazier stuff in there, oh my goodness. so. Yeah, so it's hard to imagine. Really so there's a imagine.
0: there's a second edition of the Black Swan out. Oh, um, really? Yeah, it's got a few extra stuff in it. Uh, I, I, there's uh, definitely a, an appendix. I think a brand new appendix at the end where he talks about implications and applications. But um, there's new stuff all the way, even in the introduction. He um, he added some Nasim uh, Nicholas Taleb, and um, the first I believe the first book of his inserta. So um, very interesting. You know, listening to
1: that. Yeah. And, uh, so, I have to pick up the new one, uh, the new Blacks one. That'll be interesting.
2: Yeah. You know, as a product person, I actually love also uh, listening to a lot of these um, books on the business side of things. So I was listening to this book called um, think Ultimate Sales Machine, um, uh, you know, maybe a, a, few, a couple of months back. And what I really enjoyed was that, you know, while you're listening to these books in the car and you have this free time, which is so hard to get, by the way, these days, is that yeah. it actually triggers, gives me that space to think about things that and and reconstruct my ideas and thoughts. So most of the ideas that I get about maybe writing a blog post and stuff like that happen typically in the car, listening to something that triggers some idea in my head, and and do that because otherwise the whole day is like you know meetings and chasing stuff and whatever. So sure, yeah. awesome.
1: Now that's a good. Um... No, that's a good point. Like, it's interesting how it's always good to stretch your brain because you know, our brain is pretty much, I mean, I, I'm i not physically fit, but, you know, I know my brain, I like to think my brain is, at least. You know, like it's just good to kind of, I, I get a lot out of just walking around or driving and kind of thinking about things and listening to books that are kind of outside my norm, right? Which is probably why I picked up The Wolf of Wall Street because, like, I'd, I'd been doing so many technical books and kind of sales books, and I was like, oh, you know, let me, let me check that out. So, but um, you see that
2: sometimes, you know, reading something or, you know, listening to something in one context, which is completely different suddenly starts connecting to all the stuff that we are doing like day to day. And it's, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I totally get that. Well, cool. Um, so with that, um, is there's uh, any, uh, anything, uh, where people can find you, I know at next
2: Yeah, uh, next.com and on LinkedIn, actually, I do do engage with a lot of folks in conversations over there as well. Excellent.
1: Um, Awesome. Well, thank you for being on the show, and we'll let Bailey wrap us up.
0: Now that was some show. Is it me or are the shows getting better? It could be my bias that leads me to say that, but I figured I would ask to get more input. After all, what's an AI without good input and a feedback loop? Speaking of feedback, Have you checked out Data Driven magazine yet?